1: you do you let true green do your lawn care visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed Ah. the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to
2: carvana it doesn't get any better than this
0: your favorite seat's the best spot in the house make it even better by entering your license plate or vin and getting a real offer in minutes there really is no place like home and speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
1: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
2: I wanted to capture the marvelous complexity of the, these people who had really led the fight against ISIS, most of the women I interviewed had never heard the idea of women's rights. ISIS at the beginning ridiculed them and then they really got to know them and they would specifically target them. One of them joked, Azima joked first and then they all did in all these interviews saying, you know, we took it as a compliment that we were important enough, that ISIS singled us out.
0: Gail Samak-Laman is an author, journalist, and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She just published her most recent book, The Daughters of Kobani, which tells for the first time the amazing story of how a group of Kurdish women came to serve as one of America's leading partners in the fight against ISIS. Gail joins us today to talk about that new book, and we will be right back with that conversation after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Gail, thank you so much for joining us on Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show.
2: I'm delighted to be here.
0: So your new book, The Daughters of Kobani, has just been published. I have to tell everyone that I really enjoyed reading it. I had a hard time putting it down. So congratulations on a terrific piece of work. Gail, I thought before we actually jump into the book, I just want to ask you to briefly define some acronyms for our listeners because i'm afraid that you and i may start using them yes, and absolutely. we may we may lose people okay so i'll just throw them out there and you can just you know explain what what these groups are so the first one is the YPG
2: so these are the people's protection units these are the syrian kurds who were first protecting their area and then joining the americans and fighting isis
0: and then YPJ
2: YPJ is the all-women's, the Women's Protection Units who uh, were formed in 2013 as an offshoot of the People's Protection Units. And their goal was both all women fighting for women's rights and fighting ISIS and joining the Americans alongside the ISIS fight.
0: And then the SDF.
2: The SDF is the Syrian Democratic Forces. I know you've talked about this before on the show. That is is the group that became America's partner from 2015 onward, which formed both the Syrian Kurds and uh, Arab groups allied with them.
0: So the YPG and the YPJ were part of the SDF.
2: That's right. And the SDF becomes the umbrella group with which the Americans fight ISIS as the ground force. And the Americans come in from the air, and the SDF leads from the ground. Uh, Arab, Christian Kurds, a uh, Turkmen, a uh, uh, multi-ethnic uh, group.
0: Great. And then lastly, the PKK.
2: PKK uh, is the uh, group in Turkey that is basically Turkey's enemy number one. And the PKK and Abdullah Ocalan, who is the godfather of the PKK, he becomes sort of part of the ideological underpinnings for uh, the Syrian Kurds, talking about both uh, Kurdish autonomy, not statehood, but Kurdish autonomy, and that the Kurds could not be free until women were free. And PKK is a terrorist group, according to the United States, and certainly according to Turkey and many other countries.
0: And then what, uh, just a quick question, what's the relationship at the end of the day between the YPG and the PKK?
2: This is the thorn that ran through the entire relationship. But the truth was that everybody wanted to make a cartoon of that relationship. And it really is somewhere in between. Certainly, Abdullah Ocalan is the ideological figure for the Syrian Kurds. He is the Nelson Mandela-like figure. For Turkey, he's enemy number one. But he provides the ideological underpinning for a group that could not practice uh, its Holidays could not uh, teach in its language, could not name its children in its own language, uh, face jail time simply for any kind of political expression, the Syrian Kurds. And he becomes the ideological godfather, really, that informs Uh, the Syrians who become America's partners on the ground. So while people wanted to make it uh, either all in 100 or zero, the truth was it was uh, ideologically connected, the People's Protection Units, to Abdullah Ocalan and the PKK, but that these were Syrian patriots, right? That these were people who deeply believed in protecting their areas from extremists. And they would always say to me, you know, uh, we are not controlled by Kandil. You know, they joke that we're controlled by Washington. (laughs) Uh, So, so you know, it's always the gray that we live in. Right.
0: Good. Okay. So that's, that's great. So let's dive into the book. What's it about from a kind of big picture perspective? And then why did you decide to write it?
2: The book is really about the most far-reaching experiment in women's equality in the least likely place in the world brought to you by women who had been fighting the Islamic state since before it was the Islamic state and we're building this kind of utopia for equality on the ashes of the ISIS fight. And how in the world did the Americans come to back this group whose ideology about women's emancipation really went farther than anything we've seen almost anywhere in the world and who were the most effective ground force to break the Islamic State. And I had to tell the story because honestly, the first time I saw it on the ground in Syria in the summer of 2017, Even as I was prepared for it by a young woman who was in uh, U.S. Special Operations Forces, who I'd written about for years, um, even she prepared me for it. But it's still very different. We do not have the visual library of 25 young women with fatigues, smiley face socks, Timex watches, braids and AK-47s going off to fight the Islamic State.
0: It's just too good a story not to tell, right?
2: Correct. And how did that end up that the Americans backed them as the force that could not just take territory, but as you know well, hold territory, right? and yeah. then put a, a fragile stability in place on the ashes of this fight?
0: So Gail, the book toggles back and forth between kind of that big picture that you just outlined and the experiences of four Syrian Kurdish women fighters, Azima, Rojda, Amznarine, and no ruse. And why did, you, why did you structure the book that way?
2: War is deeply personal, and we don't talk about it that way. And for these people who were fighting the Islamic State, ISIS was not an abstraction, which was something that really struck me the first time I met them in 2017, and then in six subsequent trips afterward. They talk about ISIS with this intimacy of the people who have been fighting them house by house and street by street, and town by town for a half decade. You know, one Christian young woman I asked one time, uh, you know, what did you think the first time you saw an ISIS fighter? And she looked at me like I had asked her possibly the dumbest question ever asked in the history of interviewing and said, what did I think? I I thought I wanted to kill it. And I think I wanted to capture how very normal people with normal lives, get pushed into extraordinary circumstances. And how in the world was it that men who bought and sold women at the center of their ideology came to face off every day against women who had women's emancipation right at the heart of their motivation and their ideology?
0: And why focus on these four particular women? Why did you choose them?
2: So I chose these four because they came from different backgrounds. You know, some had faced, you know, Azima is a character who, you know, is, is, you know this commander who you almost can't believe is real, even when you're speaking with her. You know, just swashbuckling and funny, and sneaking cigarettes. You know, even at the end in the and the ceremony, as you know saw at the end, right? She's you know leaned over in the ceremony with all these U.S. diplomats and all of her commanders, you know, trying to sneak puffs right, right, cigarettes, right after she's fought ISIS, you know, for years, and they nearly killed her three times. So she was just a sort of larger than life, but very real character who uh, I think embodied uh, this spirit of, we will never give up. We will die before we let ISIS defeat us. And Nehruz was really the commander that the Americans would always say, you must talk with her. She uh, is Muslim. For those of you who've been following Syria, you know, the commander of first the People's Protection Units and then the SDF, who's America's very trusted partner on the ground. And she is very much his right hand, deputy, uh, other side of his brain. You know, they talk constantly. Uh, He delegates to her. And I think that really took the Americans aback the first time they saw it, because quite honestly, for all of the American men who uh, spoke with me from uh, special operations, um, they had not worked with women in a partner force, let alone women who were truly leading, not just leading from base, but leading, you know, from the front lines, and you'll see the chapter right where she is, uh, where the women are crossing first in, in and into Manbij. Um, and the other two I chose because I thought they were, um, just showed that you don't have to have swagger to be a true commander and a leader. Quieter, had faced obstacles in life, and yet were absolutely resolute. And, and the Americans and also the people protection units commanders and the SDF commanders all said, you know, you have to talk to them. And also they were the people that the American women, who served uh, alongside them in the training, uh, you know, in the training and equip effort really said you have to speak with.
0: So Gail, tell us how the United States came to rely on the YPJ.
2: The United States was on the hunt for a Goldilocks when it came to Syria, a group that would uh, be able and willing to take terrain from the Islamic State and then hold terrain against the Islamic State and then put in place some kind of governance structure that the Americans uh, could understand and navigate and live with, and would not topple Assad. And as I know you know well, right, that was not easy. The uh, guiding principle was that the ghost of the Iraq war hung over every decision made on Syria, and looking for that force that could both beat ISIS and uh, not topple Assad was nearly impossible, and it led the Americans straight to uh, these this group of Syrian Kurds
0: so as you mentioned earlier one of one of the extraordinary things about the book that I found was that it takes this strategic geopolitical issue and puts you know a very human face on it, as you said and i 'd love for our listeners to get a sense of what inspired some of these women to join these militias and the challenges they faced in doing so, and and in that spirit, I, I wondered if you could tell us Znarin's story because I think it's it's really moving.
2: It is so moving, and and you know, um, book interviews are really tedious, and so I would go back to Syria every quarter and sit with them, and it's oh my gosh, Gail, you're not done with the book yet, and uh, I said no, but you have to tell me, and so the story emerged right because people's lives are complex and i wanted to capture the marvelous complexity of these people who had really led the fight against Isis Znareen was a young woman who saw her dreams crushed because she was born a girl you know she wanted to be educated at 17 or 16 or 17 her uncle said no told her father it is not appropriate it's not necessary for girls to go to university she did everything she could to fight that but She was never going to win and she loved her parents and so finally decided she wasn't going to cause any more uh, problems for them. She would go along with her family, which was conservative and did not believe in girls uh, education, certainly higher education. Then they moved to Kobani and she meets this man she loves and they're going to be happy and she has this shot at real joy. And her family says, no, her uncle has chosen one of his sons who wants to marry her. And that's the end, right? That's what's going to happen. She's going to marry him. And she said, no. I will not do it. I will not marry anyone. There is zero chance I'm marrying your son and I'm not going to marry anyone else if you're taking my love away from me. And I think if you think about what that must be like, you know, to see all of that opportunity and hope uh, crushed. And then she gets a knock on the door from people who say, look, you know, who follow Abdullah Ocalan and say, we're talking about Kurdish rights and women's rights too. And she had never heard this idea of women's rights. And in fact, most of the women I interviewed, including you'll see at the end of the book, the Arab young women uh, who joined the all women's units later had never heard the idea of women's rights. And she doesn't believe them at first, but then she joins them and makes her way as the ISIS fight, you know, as the fight against extremists, before it was even ISIS, when it was Nusra, another group, um, really becomes the thing that shapes her life because no one by then uh, can take anything from her because she has nothing left to lose.
0: You know, what, one of the things that just popped into my mind, and I don't know the answer to, why why are women's rights so important to Ocalan's political ideology?
2: It is a fascinating question, and I point folks to the works of Eliza Marcus and other scholars. Um, it is uh, even we even had a point uh, where one of my editors said to me, you know, this idea of the housewifeization of, of women's work, which Ochalan has written about. She said, "Are you writing that?" I said, "No, this comes straight from from, from the text." And I think it was just this idea that um, women being the housewifeization of women's work. Uh, the uh, reduction of women to only house also enslaved men, and that to truly be free, you had to go to a period where women and men were equal. And it was part of this whole idea that Ochilan had, which was informed by Murray Bookchin, another character I truly could not invent, who was a former uh, communist then anarchist, then became really uh, a preacher of grassroots participatory democracy, without hierarchy, and with ecology and environmental awareness at the center. You know, Ocalan reads Bookshin's books and decides that governance is going to be about these grassroots participatory democracy, these town hall experiments, and that women will be uh, very much at the center. So in every town this group takes from ISIS, a male and a female co-head of the civil council goes in. A women's council gets established. And it's not that the Kurdish men loved it. It's that the women didn't care. They weren't asking permission because they had this umbrella of the Ocalan ideology. And that's the thing that struck me like more than anything else was that I have never seen women more comfortable with power and less apologetic about running things anywhere in the world.
0: So, Gail, how were, how were these fighters seen by others on the battlefield? You know, U.S. forces, Kurdish male fighters, and, you know, maybe most interesting by ISIS itself. How are they viewed? It, uh,
2: In that order, it's a great question. Uh, and I so love this discussion. They were seen really at first as oddities and then as warriors. The American men, I spoke to a number of uh, US special operations folks at length over years. And the reason that they kept coming back to was that, that they had such deep respect for them was what one of them told me was what they called the warrior ethos. You know, One of them kept coming back to a West Point speech uh, and just kept coming back to the fact that these were people who put duty, honor, and country above all else. And that was where they found the bond on the American side, that they were effective, that they were no nonsense, and that they really were uh, true fighters. And in fact, one of the Americans said to me, I've never met people who complained less about harsher conditions uh, anywhere in the world. And... uh, on the Syrian Kurdish side, on the men's side, I think at the beginning, uh, men were not terribly in favor of the women's protection units being formed from the people's protection units. And that's dealt with in the book. Right? In the book, you know, your listeners will will see that they talk about this. And Rojda really comes up with the answer is that, you know, when I said, Why did you need to join all women's units when you already had equality? Why create women's protection units? She said, We just didn't want men taking credit for our work. Yeah. And in ISIS fighters is so interesting because ISIS at the beginning ridiculed them and then they really got to know them and they would specifically target them. They would very much get on the radio, as you'll see in the book, and say, uh, you know, we're coming to find you, we're coming to enslave you, we're coming to kill you. And, um, you know, one of them joked, Azima joked first, and then they all did in all these interviews saying, you know, we took it as a compliment that we were important enough that ISIS singled us out.
0: One of the most riveting parts of the book to me focuses on the YPJ's experiences during the siege of Kobani, one of the major inflection points in the battle against ISIS. And I'm wondering what YPJ's role was in that fight and why was this battle so significant and how did the cooperation evolve uh, during that battle?
2: So the book really is a uh capturing at the beginning the battle for kobani which is the david versus goliath story only you know in many ways david is a is a girl because you have the syrian kurds which is a pretty ragtag force with a an ideology that many would consider uh really uh hard to fathom in how far it goes with its notions of equality etc motivating this fighting force to fight to the death against the men of the Islamic state who at this point have never lost a fight. They're fresh off Mosul. I know you know all of this well, right? Fresh off Mosul, fresh off Sinjar, have already taken Raqqa. You know, they are on a tear. And the book goes back and forth, as your readers or your listeners will see, um, between the perspective of U.S. folks in Washington- and in northern Iraq, watching this. And the Syrians on the ground, these Kurdish women, watching them as real people coming to take their town and saying, no, this will not happen. We will die. We will fight to every single person is dead before we will let these people beat us. And I think it's that spirit that that the battle for Kobani becomes this international moment because the truth is cameras could capture it. And there is in the book a moment where, you know, U.S. Official, former officials say, you know, the fact that it was on camera made a difference. We could see this, you know, ragtag group of, of you know, people without uniforms, et cetera, right, with very, uh, you know, not very good weaponry um, up against ISIS, which was truly fresh from a tear of winds and acting like it. And so the book shows the women who are commanding in that fight.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Gail Samak-Lamon.
2: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: So, Gail, I would love for you to tell two stories from the siege of Kobani. And the first is Azima's operation to rescue, I think it was 21 of her fighters who had been surrounded by ISIS.
2: The daughters of Kavani tells the story about Azima in this moment where she gets a call saying 21 of us are pinned down. This is her forces. She's now leading. She's gone from, you know, leading a couple folks to now really leading uh, multiple people, uh, you know, and now has 21 folks pinned down. And lots of people are on the radio trying to tell them what to do. And she says, don't listen to anybody. I'm going to get you out. And then we go as readers, you know, into her mind. Is like, am I really going to be able to do this, you know? Uh, and and we follow her as she does everything. She she goes to uh, figure out first of all where exactly they are, then how uh, she can get them out using the heavy um, uh, the heavy weapons that they have on hand in Kobani, and then when that fails, going to what is the next resort? How is she going to get twenty one people out? of a situation in which ISIS could obliterate them at any moment. And,
0: it, and how does she, yeah. yeah how does she do it, that? Yeah. <laughs>
2: you know, we follow her in the book through um, this kind of cumbersome, but very real uh, process that they had for calling in U.S. airstrikes. And we follow her through this kind of heart stopping moment. And, and it really was that as she was telling this to me, as your, your listeners will see in the, in the book, which is she's waiting to see, will the Americans come through? How was this process going to happen? Will they be able, even if they do, will they be able to figure out how to hit ISIS and not hit our forces? And we followed through to that moment.
0: Yeah. And, and, and do you think this was a big moment of, of trust for her and her fighters in the U S so
2: interesting because one of the Americans who read it uh, said to me, you know, I just wanted to be able to reach through the page and say, you know, we're coming. Don't worry. Uh, but I think she had no other choice. She wanted to believe in the Americans, but they really felt in many ways like they were on their own fighting ISIS. The whole world was watching. The Americans were overhead, but who was going house by house and room by room? It was them. So I think it was a lot of hope and some faith.
0: And please tell us the story of the gift that the commander of the SDF gave a U.S. special operator on his first visit to Kobani and how that drove home the critical role that the YPJ was playing.
2: You know, I, I wanted to capture in, in Daughters of Kobani how the Americans saw these women. And this, there was an American special operations soldier who said, you know, I um, wasn't sure what the symbolism was of this, these women. You know, Were they really in the fight? Were they not? And he goes into Kobani and, and readers follow him in the book the first time an American's there on the ground after the battle has ended. And he gets handed this green scarf that you see all through the region in uh, Northeastern Syria with scallops and flowers on it. And it turns out it's the scarf of one of the young women who died fighting ISIS for her people, but also for the world because they did the world's work in stopping the Islamic State from the ground.
0: Yeah, I love that story. So Gail, where's the YPJ today? How are they thinking about the US? Do you stay in contact at all with your four protagonists? How do you think about all that?
2: You know, today there is this very fragile, but real stability, even after The Turkish-backed incursion of the end of 2019. Uh, I was there in December of 2019, and it almost has no right to be as uh, stable as it is. And I think what you see is the uh, SDF really working to keep what fragile stability it has been able to carve out and that Turkey has not attacked um, in place and waiting to see what the new administration will bring.
0: And is the YPJ still an entity? Or are they still together? Or
2: Yeah. Did- so the YPJ remains very much a force on the ground. And the YPJ remains very much a part of the, – so the women's protection units remain very much a part of the people's protection units and the SDF uh, more broadly. And I think, you know, the question of what comes next has loomed over this entire story since I started working on it in 2017. And I think that is no less the case now in 2021.
0: So Gail, maybe we can shift to some broader questions. And the first is the book is a natural extension, I think, of your previous two books in that all of them focus in some way on how women in male-dominated societies deal with times of conflict and crisis. So what, what drew you to those stories?
2: You know, I truly never set out to write books about women. I set out to tell stories that weren't being told. And I think the narrative of the victim has so often shaped the way we see women in war. And often, you know, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time there on the ground with young women who lived under the Taliban, with young women who lived after the Taliban, uh, and of course, in northeastern Syria and, and some in northern Iraq. And the one thing you see is that they are the strongest people I've ever met. And yet we continue to kind of uh, Swath them in this you know victim blanket, and I wanted to just tell stories that I saw and that I thought other people should see too. And now I think we're in a moment where there's room for these stories where people see that you don't need an adjective in front of it. it's simply a war story, a friendship story, a story of love. and the fact is it happens uh, to have women as its main characters, but one day we'll actually see women's stories as universal, and I hope these stories do their part to get us there.
0: Can you mention the other books?
2: Absolutely. So the first book I did was uh, The Dressmaker of Karkana, about a teenage girl whose business supported her family under the Taliban, and all these girls who were breadwinners during years when they could not be on their own streets. Uh, and the second book is called Ashley's War, and that was about an all-women special operations team that was recruited in the U.S., American women, recruited for Army Ranger and Navy SEAL missions, direct action missions, back in 2011. While women were officially banned from ground combat. And, you know, that is now in the process of becoming a film at Universal with Reese Witherspoon, uh, producing and Leslie Linka Gladder of Homeland uh, directing.
0: That's really cool. And, and how involved are you in that?
2: Very. You know, I mean, I think uh, my grandmother was a film distributor, so I'm very careful about walking the line between helpful and, uh, you know, (laughs) interventionist. (laughs) So I'm very careful about it. But, you know, we've now been working on this for a half decade as a team. Uh, Bruna Papandrea, who just did The Undoing uh, for HBO, Uh, and it's an amazing team. And so, you know, they really understand the responsibility of telling the first all women special operations, you know, ensemble war story.
0: That's really cool. So Gail, you talk in the book about your own views, your personal views of gender equality and how they were influenced by your upbringing, particularly the views of your father. Can you talk about that a bit?
2: Sure. And it's funny because I really never want to shape the reader's views. You know, I, I come from PG County, Maryland, where we have all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of, of views and want to deal with all with respect. And I, I want to just shine a flashlight for readers. But I wanted to take readers into my own story because it did influence why I wanted to tell this. My father uh, was born in Baghdad and lost his country as a kid because he was the wrong religion. But he always, you know, I never really understood him as a kid growing up in PG County. You know, I was smoking Barbara Reds and eating pistachios and playing soccer, um, you know, wouldn't carry flowers. He didn't think that was masculine, you know, and, and I really, one day we were having this discussion and I don't know, I, I was asking why uh, women that we were around were eating after men. So I thought, I think that's ridiculous. I think I was nine or 10. And my father looked at me and he said, do you really think men and women are equal? and i wasn't offended by it at all because he truly it was puzzling for him and so i think i had a i I've really been spending time in the region i had so much more empathy for how he saw the world um unfortunately he had already passed by then um but you know i really think about him all the time as you know uh, what he saw and what he experienced as a child and how that shaped him and also the views about what women's work was
0: you know there is of course and you've you've mentioned this already something deeply ironic in this story that it took ISIS, right? This brutal Islamic extremist organization that enslaved women and raped women to pave the way for in this enclave in Northeast Syria, right? A, a place that puts women's rights front and center. And just wondering how, how you think about that, how your protagonists think about that and interestingly how how isis might think about that you that know, irony
2: it's it's a terrific question and every book i've written begins with a question i cannot answer and i really could not understand how it was that men who put the uh truly the enslavement of women at the center of their ideas came to catapult onto the global stage this fighting force with women's emancipation at its heart, with the Americans backing them. And I I really wanted to just, it took me, you know, two years of deep reporting and trying to talk to people and understand it and sitting there in rooms across Northeastern Syria and Northern Iraq and in the United States, really working to understand how these events came together that this guy sitting in Turkish prison read a books from a, a gentleman A writer in Vermont who was not terribly well read by the Americans, frequently read by the Americans, and put these ideas of grassroots democracy and and town halls uh, at the center of governance in this sliver of no man's land, recognized by no one, but backed by the Americans. And the book really tries to contend with what Isis saw about of them too, because I think Isis was bewildered by them at the beginning. You know, they would joke, you know, kill the women. And the book talks about this. At the beginning, they say, kill all the women you see fighting. And then at the end, when Azima, you know, and, and her, uh, you know, our other characters are very good at what they do. It's like, don't get shot by women. Be very careful of those women. Stay away from them or, you know, make sure that you're not killed by them. Mm. And that becomes the guiding principle.
0: So this is, a, this is a tough question, but one of the things that I was thinking as I read the book is, are there lessons here for women's rights in general, right? Women's rights in the United States or women's rights in other Muslim countries? How do you think about that?
2: The book really contends with the idea that these women, the women who fought ISIS, uh, their effort matters far beyond their borders. Certainly they see themselves as fighting for women who are oppressed all around the world. And in fact, at the end, Nuruz told me, you know, if if Turkey hadn't invaded, we plan to have this gathering of women's groups from around the world come here and talk about it. I really want readers to contend with that question because, you know, I thought of so many questions as I first began writing Daughters of Kobani. You know, does it take violence to stop violence against women? Uh, Is it only after military victory? that um women can put an end to violence, or is it that what it teaches us is that military campaigns pave the way for political efforts and the politics piece and putting women at the center of the politics is the lesson. And I really want readers to grapple with those questions as they read the story of, you know, women who killed ISIS.
0: What's next for you? Is is there another is there another book that you have in mind or i know you're busy doing a whole bunch of other things um you're an entrepreneur and you're working on technology and so you're doing a ton of stuff but i was also struck in the book by you're missing right you're missing the fight in a sense and it drawing you back so i'm wondering if there's something else you're thinking about and or working on in this regard
2: I laugh only because it 's the question that I kn- I know you know this well, right that you always dread when you write a book because yeah. you know it's basically uh, a much uh, more physically pleasant form of giving birth. I say that as, as <laughs> uh, and you then put it out in the world, and all you want to do is just make sure it 's okay right <laughs> make sure that it does that you have given everything you have to giving it its best shot to reach people to move people to bring people into this world that feels foreign but isn't. And, you know, you and I have joked that, that I think it is the only book blurred by both endorsed by both Admiral McCraven, uh, and Elizabeth Gilbert of Roth, <laughs> right? And, and that makes me so happy. I really want people to, to contend with ideas and to feel like it belongs to them, that it's not just for policy folks or for people who only uh, listen to national, uh, security ideas, right? But you have such a broad audience. And I think that's what I want for this story as well. Um, The book I was working on when I got interrupted, as your uh, listeners will see at the start of the book, by a U.S. uh, special operations uh, soldier, a female I'd written, a woman I'd written about for years, um, was about the single moms I grew up with and this community of women who worked two jobs and taught us really how to go to work every single day and not feel sorry for ourselves and how to look at the world in a way that respects People, even when they see the world differently and also just their adventures and deep misadventures, <laughs> sort of like a nine to five, but, uh, in real life. Um, so yes, I might go back to that. Uh, but really first I want folks to, to come to love this story and, and the daughters of Kobani.
0: So Gail, we're, um, you've been, you've been amazing with your time. And, and let me just ask you one more question. We're having This conversation on the eve of a new Biden administration. And this will run right after President Biden has been inaugurated. And I'm wondering how you think about what's at stake for the Syrian Kurds in general and for these amazing Syrian Kurdish women in particular as uh, the Biden administration decides what it wants to do in Iraq and Syria.
2: Everything is at stake for the women who are in the Daughters of Kobani. These are women who fought ISIS. This is a force that lost 10,000 of its people uh, in the fight against ISIS for the world, really, with America as uh, the air power and the train and equip power. But them is the ground force doing the fighting. And uh, right now, the U.S. presence in northeastern Syria, which I've seen for myself, uh, actually is making a difference. It is allowing this very fragile kind of stability to exist or to continue to exist, and the stakes are high for the United States as well. Um, this truly is the post 9 11 policy that actually did what it set out to do. It is a buy with and through, right? A partner force.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Did
2: what it set out to. That did everything it promised and then some. And the question is, what comes next for it? And I do think many people. We'll be watching to see how the new administration, uh, you know, really takes up this policy.
0: The book is Daughters of Kabani. The author is Gail samak Laman. Gail, thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Gail samak Laman. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio.